Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we are here for the Invested Podcast where we're talking about how to learn how to invest properly. How, how the best people in the world, the, not necessarily the best people in the world, although these are very nice people, <laughs> but, but the best investors in the world, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett in particular, but certainly I would throw into the pile Guy Spear, Monesh Prabhai, fabulous investors who are having very, very good long-term results um, over many, many decades, are in a family that I'm teaching Danielle about for the last two years. Yeah. <laughs> Slowly but surely. Yeah, that's true. But I liked what you said in the beginning where we're, we're always sort of trying to come up with our little podcast intro, yeah. <laughs> the, the never-ending project. And I liked the uh, learning to invest properly thing because as we've talked about so many times, value investing, deep value investing, as you call it, is all about investing in the underlying company, choosing only good companies with the various principles that we talk about. And it's real investing rather than speculating in the market on stuff that you might sell five days later. And and it kind of comes down to this, honestly, it kind of comes down to this one basic principle Warren Buffett Ooh, calls, that? well, he basically says rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't lose rule number one, which is taken a little bit by a lot of people like, well, you know, buy low, sell high. But the one principle <laughs> that fits with that is so important is that before you put your hard earned money into something um, and remembering that we don't, when we think we have a good idea to buy a business, we're not going to load a, 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 you know, do as Buffett says, we're not going to walk out in the if it's raining gold, with, and we're not going to walk out there with a thimble. We're going to wash out. <laughs> we're going to walk out with a wash tub. And so, if you're going to get wash tub or pickup truck size loads with your hard earned money, you can't you can't afford to make mistakes. And so, the key principle here for rule number one, the key principle is that you're going to buy something, and you're not going to lose money on it because you have a high degree of certainty that ten years from now it'll be worth more than you're paying today. Yeah, I think that's such a good way to put it. That's just where the rubber meets the road. I mean, that's it. If you can remember that, then everything else follows from that, including spending a lot of time reading about companies that you're not going to buy. And um, <laughs> I mean, Monesh Prabhai is fabulous. You should read his book, Dondo Investor. It's just wonderful. Um, and we've talked about it here. Basically says over and over again that you should expect to look at 90% at of the companies that you look at, you, you are going to go into the too hard box or you're going to say no. 90%, he says, are going to be too hard. Yeah. That's crazy. 90%? And there's nobody can, that's going to say Monesh Pabrai is not a smart guy. He's a smart guy. And if if he's finding 90% are too hard or, 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 or a no... Then for you and me, it's wait, gotta wait, be. You just changed it. First, it was they're too hard. Now it's too hard, or a no, as in you don't want to invest in them. Right. Didn't I say okay, that? That makes more sense to me. That makes more sense. So that's a lot of no's, right? I mean, that's a lot of out of out out of the inbox into the too hard box or into the no box. Yeah. That's mostly what we do. Mostly but what I mean, we do. That makes total sense because. You've said over and over you're only supposed to buy a very small number of companies, 10 to 20 over the course of your life. So, Or you treat it like that in your head, right? I mean, you, <laughs> if, you, if you go into each one thinking, wow, I only got 19 punches left on my lifetime company punch card, you're just going to be more careful about buying them. And this is the thing that Warren and Charlie have been trying to convince people about for about a million years, and that is that you really have to be so patient and wait for the opportunity that's easy. And this is, it's hard for the individual investor. I mean, imagine how difficult it would be for somebody like Monish Pabrai or Guy Spear who are managing other people's money, who expect a result in a reasonably short period of time. Very, very hard for those guys to make the returns that they're doing, which is how they're, they're so smart to be able to do it. But it's really hard for me. It's hard for you. You want to do something when we're trying to figure it out. You want to pull the trigger. And it's the pulling yeah. of that trigger too many times that wrecks you. 
there's a real there's a real feeling of all right, I've been doing this now for a little while. I've been researching. I've been learning. Like, I'm ready to go. Like, I'm ready to get in the game. You know, like, put me in the game, coach. And I'm the coach, and I can put myself in the game. Right. And, it's, <laughs> and, and, I, and I have that feeling of, like, all right. Like, it's a little, like, antsiness. So, like, all right, I'm ready to go. You know, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. Let's go. Let's just really get it. Let's just go right now. And... <laughs> And it's hard to, um, I mean, I've talked a lot about how it's hard to be brave enough to invest. And, and then I think they're kind of, for me, there's been like, it's a little bit like you're climbing a mountain and you get to the top and then you're like, oh, and now I get to go down. And all of a sudden it seems really easy and I'm just all ready to just start running down the mountain. And, uh, and the mountain actually doesn't have a lot of opportunities to run down. There aren't a lot of paths right now. So it's a little tough to uh, to stop yourself. I think you said something really that triggered something in my mind that you said, you know, you've been trying to get to be brave enough to buy something. And I started to think, wow, well, there's a good test. If you're feeling like you have to be brave to pull the trigger, don't pull the trigger. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, I'm laughing, but that's that's a, that's a good point. Yeah. Right. In other words, let's use your climbing the mountain metaphor. If yeah, you're climbing the mountain and it's, can I, mix? There's I the like game, it. <laughs> there's the mountain. <laughs> I like all these metaphors. They're quite good. We're climbing a mountain. I've climbed mountains and, and dad, you just got to feel like you're in the current of the river. Okay. All right. In the current of Sometimes the river. Sometimes when you drive a car, it's a little hard to turn the wheel all the way. I don't know. Well, the current of the river is not everybody's in a boat on a river, but everybody has walked up a hill. So walking up a hill is pretty easy, right? We wouldn't go like, oh, I really have to be brave to walk up this hill. On the other hand, there are mountains you could climb where you're really sort of, well, you know, in Jackson Hole, you can walk up to, you're walking up the mountain and it's just a hike. You're on a trail and then you get to the cliff, Yeah. right? Like with XM guys when we went and climbed with those guys. And then you get to the cliff and then all of a sudden it's a whole different deal. And then you have to be brave. And that's yeah. what I think Warren Buffett's talking about when he's saying you're going to jump over six inch bars. Because I doubt that Warren has ever climbed a cliff, frankly. It doesn't seem like a cliff climbing. There aren't a lot of cliffs in Nebraska. No, I don't think he's going to do that kind of stuff. So I'm going to think that the metaphor of jumping over a six inch bar would be walking up a gentle slope. You mm -hmm. don't have to feel brave. And then when he talks about jumping over a six foot bar, like that's really hard, it's a physical effort. When you speak about being brave, that's like when you get to the cliff, even if there's a lot of handholds and there's a lot of, you know, it's a five, six level climb and it's not that hard, but still you do have to kind of nerve up for it and you want to be on a rope and all the whole thing. So that's a different, whole different world. And we don't want to go in that world that's very difficult and you have to be really a good climber we just want to walk up the damn hill okay just a little nice hill trouble is right now they're just i don't know where any little nice hills are right now <laughs> we've been we've been promising for uh what like two weeks now to talk about lululemon let's talk about it remember so, so lululemon there's a hill that looks like it. a little hill it's certainly gotten to be a lot. Friendly little yoga-fied hill. Friendly little hill. Let's go take a look at the hill. And well, and so what do we look at first when we look at Lululemon? What's All right. We know immediately that we go to the foundation of ruler type investing, which is, is this going to be worth more in 10 years than it is today? Yeah, okay. Yeah. The answer is? I don't know. There we go. Let's start with that. <laughs> Isn't that extremely obvious since we haven't even looked into it? So the yeah, first thing is that it is not extremely obvious that it's going to be worth more than 10 years than it is today. No, I said it's, it's obvious that we don't know. I know. Right now. But yeah. what's my point is we can't really see the top of this hill where, where we are right now. We need to climb this a little bit. We need to get into this a little bit. Not to push the metaphor too far. Sure. We need to get into this a little bit because it is not obvious to us that this stays a hill. You see what I'm saying? No. Okay. <laughs> I don't sure I do either. It's <laughs> I'm gonna get hung in this metaphor. What I mean by that is that that if well if I were to if I were to say, let's say that 
Um, let's say I could buy Exxon Mobile or Apple. Let's go Apple Computer, right? Sure. Not even Apple Computer. Let's go to Philips. I, never mind. I'm not even going to talk about a specific company because I know I'm just going to get tangled up. In this market, it's so hard to find a hill. I'm telling you, they're all mountains everywhere. So we, let's just go with Lululemon. And let's decide how to figure out if this is a hill or if it's got a big cliff in front of us that we'd have to be an expert to climb. Oh, I see. So a hill would be something we would like, might possibly want to own that hill. And a mountain would be something we would shy away from. Is that yes, the idea? yes. That's the I idea. See. Okay. Okay. So is this a hill? First of all, what does the hill look like, right? Right. What's Lululemon? What is that? So let's start well, with that. I will admit, <laughs> not today actually, but the day that we talked about Lululemon first, I was wearing head to toe Lululemon, <laughs> <laughs> which was a complete coincidence. And as soon as you said it, I was like, oh my God, I'm wearing so much Lululemon. And then I like thought about it and I realized I'm wearing entirely, like this is actually kind of, terrifyingly product placed but it was true i really like lululemon um they make good leggings and good workout tops and i enjoy them and i purchase them with my money so that, that's what they do they make so they started out as a yoga attire company and that's their whole basic company ethos is is clothing for yoga since then which are for people who don't do yoga like sort of like close to the body leggings and shorts for men and women they do both genders and um although typically people think of them as women's clothing and sort of like close to the body tops so that as you're going upside down in yoga and stuff everything kind of stays where it's supposed to and you're not accidentally flashing the person next to you <laughs> and um and but seriously and combined with that um people want yoga clothes that are flattering you know like you wear tight stuff it can as we all know ladies it can look very bad so lulu figured out a way to make actual flattering tight like you know lycra style clothing and they did that by inventing their own fabric which is called well they've invented a number of them but the original one that was a big splash was called luon and now they have like different kinds of Luon and Luon was the fabric that they actually had a big snafu with where they manufactured it incorrectly I think and uh and they came out with all these pants that were see-through which as I said you don't want to flash the person next to you in yoga so that was a real problem so that was um wait and didn't the chairman of the board didn't the founder compound his error yeah yeah so he was the I forget his name I'm doing all this from memory um I forget his name, but he founded the company, this guy, I think he's, I think it's, he might be, be a Canadian guy. I think it might be a Canadian company originally. And, um, and he said something like, well, it doesn't really matter. Oh, so what they do is they, I don't know if it's still true, but they used to only manufacture clothes up to like size 12 or something like that. Like not very large sizes in us sizes. And, um, and somebody called him on that and said, like, you're an athletic company. Why aren't you making clothing for people who are larger than a size 12? And he said, basically, we don't really want those people wearing our clothes, which is obviously such a jerk thing to say. I mean, good Lord. So the guy uh, either stepped down or got fired basically pretty soon after that. And they got a new CEO. And, uh, and that was the last time I really looked at them as a company, which was a while ago. So I don't know what they've been doing since then. And I'm glad that you brought them up. I'm a bit curious about how they've been doing. Well, they have been doing really bad. Oh, they've been doing, <laughs> they've been doing bad. Really bad, really bad. Let me so add, by the way, I talked about them being a yoga clothing company, but they have been very much trying to brand themselves as a general active wear company. Uh, particularly running clothes, because a lot of running clothes are similar to yoga clothes. Um, I think maybe they're doing like some tennis skirts, you know, stuff like that. And their competitors are Athleta, 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 Athleta. No. Nah. Anyway, the one that's owned by Gap. And um, who 
else do they compete with? How about Under Armour? Oh, Under Armour, which we obviously spoke about two weeks ago. Yeah. And, you know, then other sort of more like general sportswear companies, I would say, like your Nikes and your Adidas. But um, but Lululemon is much more specialized than those companies. Yeah. Well, well, there's my spiel. Well, okay. That's a really good overview. And look at that. No research. There you go. So the, the thing that's astonishing to me is that you were completely in Lululemon clothes. So... What I wanted to know is, so in, in what we're pursuing here is, will they be worth more in 10 years than they are today, given what well, we Wait, wait, I have to interrupt you because I'm, I'm just thinking like, I just told you all of that purely from my own experience as a consumer of Lululemon. Yeah, which so, is great. It's cool. Like it reminds me how much we all know about products we consume. I mean, Lululemon might be a little bit different than other given companies just because they have such a strong ethos to their messaging and a lot of people know about them. But, um, but I would say I could probably give you a spiel like that on a lot of various consumer products. And I bet, I bet you could too. I mean, yours would be different than mine. (laughs) (laughs) So what is it going to be worth more in 10 years than today? Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe if they can get it together and provide some broader clothing options for those of us who, you know, don't wear a size zero zero. Right, right. So I'm just wondering, is Lululemon more like um, sort of Under Armour, you know, a, a company that, well, let's let's run down the different kinds of protection. Because when we're looking at, will it be worth more tomorrow than it will, is today? Um, the, the fundamental question comes down to first, you know, understanding the business and, and that's, you know, just can you dig into it and get, get clear with it? And then the question narrows down from there to what is the intrinsic durable characteristic that protects Lululemon from Under Armour or the Gap crushing them, right? What do they have yeah. that, that they can protect long term? <clears throat> so... We, let's well, run let's, down do the you list. Mind if we just go through the steps yeah, very carefully for yeah. those of us who are not you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one, capable of understanding the company, comma, am I? Uh, I would say yes. I use their products. I spend my own money on their products. I've been in their stores. I have no clue how a piece of clothing goes from inception to landing in a store to my closet well i know how it goes from the store to my closet but you mm-hmm. know what I, mean. mm-hmm. um, I don't know how they get me to buy it you know right but um but I, i'm sure that if i did some research i could find out all that stuff so yeah i would say i'm capable of understanding so Good. step two do they have an intrinsic and durable competitive advantage and that's what you were mentioning yes an, an intrinsic one, one that's going to stick around a long time. Yeah. I find that question really difficult in general with apparel companies. As because you should. every season they have to come up with the right thing. And if they don't, people are just aren't going to buy it. I mean, we've seen it lately with J. Crew, which was a huge clothing store for so long. And they've just been terrible. I mean, good Lord, you go on J. Crew, you can buy anything for like 40% off all the time. Yeah. They just canceled their hugely successful, um, it's not a wedding, well, they had a wedding line, but they, they did bridesmaid dresses, mm-hmm. which like pretty much every wedding I've been to in the last 10 years had J. Crew bridesmaid dresses, and they canceled that, which is a mystery to me. So it's an example of the apparel business is very up and down. The apparel business is full of of uh, companies that are have died um, after they've run through their sort of fashion forward thing. Yeah. And so they're they're kind of dangerous. So I mean, the first thing I would look at is the five moats. What what it, you know what kind of moats can an apparel company put together? And then we can think of some really good apparel companies that have managed to withstand you know, the test of time and kind of see maybe what they've got going compared to this one. And so 
Let's let's run through them really quick. And the well, first, what did we say about Under Armour? What was did we say that they had a moat? I'm trying to remember. Well, let's look at what the choices are. I mean, does Under Armour have secrets that nobody else has? No. No. Have they got the only way to get that kind of gear? I mean, no. could I get it from Columbia or somebody else? Yeah. Right. No. Um, are they the cheapest guy in the market? I don't know, but probably not. Probably not. Right. Okay. So that's three of the five moats right there. Price, um, the toll bridge and secrets. Is it hard to switch like really gut wrenching and difficult and time consuming uh, and personally intrusive to switch from Under Armour equipment and clothing to Nike or Lululemon or Patagonia? Or is that hard to do? No. And we had that whole conversation about their uh, marketing deals with sports teams and how I was considering that maybe that was a switching mode, but we decided it was definitely not. Right. I mean, the sports team makes a deal and they give these guys the benefit of the fact that they're now Major League Baseball, which is cool. Don't get me wrong. They have to be good. No, but, but you made the point that it was just a marketing component. That's all. It is. Intrinsic to the company, which I thought was a really good point. And it, it points to the quality of the equipment. There's no question about that. Major Leagues aren't going to use bad gear. So you would say, well, is Under Armour good gear? And you'd have to say, well, Major League. Somebody who asked, you know, is this good equipment? Can I buy this? They would say, well, Major League Baseball is using their stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we remember that Under Armour started with kind of a technological change. They came in with T-shirts that would wick away moisture. That oh, yeah. Kevin right. Plank used. He, he basically built them himself for his own use. Uh-huh. Pretty cool. Now, that same story exists with Patagonia, which is one of the most successful clothing companies ever, right? Von Chouinard. Von Chouinard was climbing in Yosemite. He was a dirt bag Yosemite climber. And I say that with the utmost respect. A bunch of people <laughs> living in tents, should. as I should. And they were climbing in jeans, and those were not very comfortable and, and hot and not flexible. And then they started climbing in shorts, and you could just mark up your knees that way. So Chouinard built took khaki pants kind of, and then just layered a whole patch over the knee down the, uh, down the calf and up the thigh a little bit. So they were double layered. He did the same thing in the seat. So you could scooch on that granite and other climbers. Well, you would think that would be a market of 18 people, right? I mean, like, <laughs> what? Right. who the hell is going to buy these things that are super specialty equipment pieces? Well, it turns out everybody, everybody. Even if you don't use it climbing. Right. Still wants to have good gear. They want to have good gear that is used by people who need good gear. And then we'll go buy that stuff even if we don't really need it, right? So... Because well, then we know that, you know, if that day comes, we'll be ready. Right. And so Patagonia got a reputation. This is all about branding. Patagonia got... And, and branding, I don't mean it in a negative way. Like they shove ads at you until you believe that their beer is better than somebody else's beer. It's, yeah. it's that their equipment really was used by really intensely dedicated, professional, deep into it, or amateur climbers. That was what they were about. And that gave them a cachet in the 70s. And then, then here's the thing. It started there. And then Chenard bucked an enormous trend that was starting in the 1970s. Everything was granola. I mean, I was a river guide in the 1970s, honey. I remember this very, very well. It was all about cotton and wool. Everything, ah, natural fibers. Natural fibers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everybody's natural fibers. But listen, as a guide, I'm going down the Grand Canyon. I'm getting wet in my natural fiber wool ah, thing. I mean, wet wool is so heavy. Yeah, it's heavy. It's horrible. It's hor it, it, it gives you some insulation, but not a lot. And so we'd get cold and Chenard was having the same experience up on a big wall, right? It would, the rain would come in and the climbers would get soaked. And then you're in this soaking, although it's natural, you are naturally mm -hmm. freezing your rear end off. And so Chenard thought, I wonder if I build this sort of sweater made out of polyester, if yeah. it'll, if the moisture will get out of the sweater quicker 
and leave me with something warm on the wall. And it worked. Yeah. He made those pile fleece yeah. for the first time ever. Exactly. And I'll tell you what, when that when I saw the first one of those in the Grand Canyon, I immediately saw it. It was no question. I wouldn't have had a clue about marketing in the world. Nobody told me about Patagonia. I didn't see a fancy catalog. I saw a guy wearing that pill fleece sweater. And I went, what's that made out of? And he goes, it's just fleece. But the cool thing is, man, I get it wet. It gets dry really fast. My body heat dries it right out. And it stays warm even when it's wet. And I said, I want one. And I'm making $4,000 a year. Honey, I didn't care what it cost. It was was a fundamental piece of of safety equipment for a professional river guide. And so the brand there became quality. Quality. Real functionality. Yeah, functional quality. And then they made them pretty. And then they came out with a catalog. And then they had this cool stories behind each one. And, oh, my God, it's this guy I know who's climbing this mountain. And he's got this thing on. And maybe I should get one of those. And then the guides yeah. are showing people what they're wearing. And then the people are going back into the stores and wanting to get it. And it doesn't exist because you can only get it from Patagonia. Yeah. And they've been doing that now for 40 years. 40 years. Or longer. 45. 40, uh, no, longer now. Almost 50. Yeah. Coming up I would on say they have, if not the strongest brand in the apparel business, one of. Yeah. For sure. One of. Top for five. sure. For sure. And so, and Under Armour, I would say, is not quite there. No. Lululemon now, and I'm not saying they're Patagonia, but they came up in the same way that an Under Armour did or a Patagonia did by inventing their own fabric, which was needed and was so incredibly popular that it put them on the map immediately. That see, I love that story. That's what's very attractive about this. All right. So then you've got to say, all right, they've started with what we would call a secret. That's the moat, right? They've done something nobody else has ever done. Yeah, and I don't know if they've patented that fabric. I would think that they should have, but I don't know. And, and, you know, Patagonia goes out and puts its patents on. And, you know, so they start off with secrets and then they build the brand around that. And then by the time other people start to come out with other kinds of fleece, like you can get fleece from Columbia, um, you can get fleece from Under Armour. Their stuff is still not as good as Patagonia. I yeah, I don't I mean, think. Yeah. I I'm a big Patagonia fan. I am too. I'll admit it. I mean, I'll pay the they're expensive. There's a premium. But you get something better. You too. And I for a while went away from it and I bought other stuff and I won't say what it was, but it did it was not as good. It was not finally, as good. I finally just thought like, oh God, I'm gonna pay the extra thirty or fifty bucks for the Patagonia stuff. And by the way, everybody, if your Patagonia stuff breaks, like if a zipper breaks or you have rips or whatever, one of the key tenants of Patagonia, the company, is that they will replace or fix your stuff forever i love that i mean it's incredible so you you know pay more in the beginning but if you actually send it in which of course most of us don't but it's a great marketing tool again their brand of quality reliability right um they will fix it or replace it and there are stories of people who have sent in like 30 year old ripped jackets and the company like sourced the material from 30 years ago and fixed the jacket. <laughs> it's nuts. <laughs> this is not a commercial for Patagonia. I just like them a lot. I like their stuff. So for Lululemon, I don't know if they have that same kind of quality ethos in their company. I mean, they had that, the guy who founded it was not somebody I particularly respected from what he said. And um, and I don't know what the general feeling is in that company about creating good products that are useful and helpful in the world. I mean, I think, I think they are trying to create really good yoga products, but that's not quite the same. That's not quite the same. And I, and you got, and we're going into this deep because retail is very tough, right? I mean, you got to really watch out for changes in fashion. So if you want to buy something and say it's going to be worth more in 10 years, you really want to think about it like we're talking about it here. What is the thing that's going to be durable about this company that's intrinsic to it? And with Patagonia, what's just baked into it and which is so elemental to the brand is this sense of big mountain, big river, 
super guides who are using this gear, pushing it to the limit. And this gear is made to handle that. And when you get it, yeah, you're going to pay a premium, but it's going to be around forever. We'll back it up with a lifetime warranty. And guess what? Can you think of, I don't think, here, I'm sure there are some others, but you can now go out and sell your 30-year-old Patagonia sweater for like 50 bucks. Yeah, it's it's true. I heard, I think particularly in Japan, the Japanese love old Patagonia stuff and they'll pay high premiums. It's like a really interesting little sub-market. But dad, we have to get back to Lulu. We are back to Lulu. I think, which I think is unfair to compare it to a company like Patagonia, which is all about outdoor durability. Lululemon's made for like the hot yoga studio and then looking cute while you get a latte afterwards. And so the question is, the question is, can, can, I guess what I want to do is I wanted to push you over to thinking about how would you compete with Patagonia? What would you do to overcome this powerful brand? Patagonia has tried to compete with Lululemon. They make yoga pants. They make yoga tops. They are not, in my personal opinion, nobody else is, not as good. There you and go. I don't buy them. There you go. So I, I, I agree with you. Patagonia's tried to compete with some of the fishing gear that Hunter uses. Not as good. Not Hunter, as good. My stepbrother, yeah. who's a world champion fly fisherman. Yeah, I mean, they, they are incredibly good at, at what they do. Right. And sometimes when they branch out, it really works. And other times, you know, it's not their expertise and it doesn't work as well. I mean, their yoga, their leggings are perfectly fine. They are functional. They're just frankly not as cute as Lululemon's. So I buy Lululemon's. There you go. As simple as that. And this is the thing that really attracted me to Lululemon is both you and your sister, when it comes to Christmas, are perfectly happy to get Lululemon gifts and ask for them by name. Or so, yeah, that's right, because I don't want to get any, like, crappy. Exactly. <laughs> so there's something the going thing. on there. Here's the thing for our inquiry, not for Christmas this year, which, by the way, yes, just remember that one, Dad. Yeah. But for our inquiry of 10 years, I don't know that Lululemon is going to be the cutest yoga gear five years from now. I mean, much less 10 years from now, but... I mean, I would say they're going to be fine for another few years, but there could easily be some. The way Lululemon popped up out of nowhere, there could easily be some competitor that pops up out of nowhere. And then, yeah, I have no real loyalty to them. There you go. So there was something about the way Patagonia did their catalogs, the the fierce environmentalism of Von Chouinard, the way the whole company employees are treated. And I mean, they have surf days. I mean, it's just like when the surf's up, yeah. they all go surfing. It's- well, Lululemon has that, they have yoga in their offices and in their stores. I don't know how the employees are treated. I've never looked into that, but they seem decently happy. <laughs> Those you've chatted with. Yeah, I mean, for, for what's that, what that's worth, which is nothing. <laughs> which is nothing, exactly. <laughs> Um, no, but I think, I think it's an interesting point that you're making because I actually think Lululemon more than many other companies has really tried to create that kind of unique focused company culture around what they do. Um, and I I actually think that that's a big part of their appeal. It's not just that the clothes are nice looking and are nice fabrics. I, I think they can charge so much for those clothes because of the feeling of the store and all the stuff they do around yoga and exercise that really promotes their brand. So we could say that there's some very good reasons to dig in, right? We see yeah, reasons but I mean, to honestly, dig in. Everything we're saying could be said about any apparel company. I even think we could maybe say it about Patagonia. Who knows? There could be somebody that competes with them coming up in five years. Yeah, I, I think that's a lot of truth to that. I mean, it's if we're watching Ralph Lauren slide right now, seriously oh. slide. Ralph Lauren is closing their Flagsta, uh, Flagsta, what do you call it? Flagship, Flagship Fifth Avenue store, which is mm. 
kind of you, you're just seeing it the the founder had retired kind of they put a guy in from old navy he didn't cut it now the founder's back but he's in his 70s and you know he's a very wealthy guy and he, he's just you know his legacy is at risk and now they're closing stuff in order to make sure they've got cash flow it the whole thing comes to an end and yvonne chenard is in he's way up in his 70s and you know steve when steve jobs left apple when steve jobs died and Apple was left without his kind of guiding hand. Uh, uh, it was very questionable about whether Apple needed him there. And uh, they're yeah. doing pretty good. They're doing pretty good. Um, so you just you just don't know. There's a life to every business, right? They There's very few businesses that make it 100 years. Um, mm -hmm. So you have to go into these things with your eyes open. I agree with what you said. You could say this about most every company. But if I had to choose one 10 years out, I'm a, I'm going with Patagonia without even a blink, okay. Well, I said any apparel company, sure, not sure. any company. No, any apparel yeah. company. I would just jump. I would just take Patagonia in a heartbeat. Of course, I can't because they've they've never gone public. They're a private company. Yeah, because they don't want to deal with obnoxious outside investors like you. And they didn't want to have to jump through the hoops of quarterly growth and quarterly earnings and yearly yeah. growth and yearly earnings to justify their monster super big high public market price, which they felt would destroy the company, which is another reason I'd be really happy to own them thinking where they'd be in 10 years is more valuable, simply because they are really building great stuff for themselves, for their market, not to try to grow the company. That's what that's what they're all about. So they may not be worth a lot more, but they're probably not going to be worth a lot less. Whereas Lululemon's now public. And I'll tell you, um, you know, what is it? Chip Chip Wilson is the, the founder of the thing. Who, oh, okay. So he's the guy who ended up leaving. They bounced him out of the company. And I think, and in 2015, he said basically um, uh, Lululemon is priced at like twice as high on a market cap as Under Armour was. And he'd think that maybe buying Under Armour would be a smart idea. <laughs> So he's really put out some bad stuff about the company. And uh, and so I wanted to kind of bring this around to first, we got to dig into the moat. We we are now bringing up big, real big moat questions. Do they have a secret to their pants that is going to protect them into the future? Are they a tech? Are they really an R&D company? They spend a lot of money on R&D to try to get the best fabrics and are they doing something other people can't copy? And it feels a little bit like they are, a little bit like they are. So I would want to look at that. I would dig mm -hmm. into that, okay? Mm -hmm. And we, so the next thing is management and we've been talking about management. Yeah. And I have a, don't have a great feeling for the management team simply because Wilson left, they brought in other people and the woman that's running the thing just six months ago was basically saying, you know, how they're doing so well and they've overcome all their obstacles and now they're rocking and rolling. And here we are six months later and their stock drops 21% in about 10 minutes. Because yeah, they, and that's, by the way, that's why we started talking about them was yeah. they didn't meet their earnings report. And well, she came in crashed. and she came in and completely revised their future. Hmm. It's like, no, hmm. we just, we can't do that. Uh, we're not going to do that. We're, you know. And boy, that's, I love that. But when the market is pricing a company for sort of infinite growth, you end up with a price that's so high that even when it comes down, you have to wonder if it ever really went on sale. And in this case, I think that they haven't. They dropped 21%. And there's things to like about them that are, I think I like better than Under Armour. They're a very profitable company compared to Under Armour. Um, Under Armour sells about twice as much stuff as they do in terms of revenue. So, you know, if wow. you, just, you just went top line, Under Armour's twice as big, which is kind of amazing because Under Armour is huge. And to think that Lululemon is even in the ballpark, right? That's pretty good. So their revenue is about half as much, but they are just about as profitable, if not more profitable than Under Armour, hmm. right? Wow. Under Armour, yeah. I think last year made like 250 million and, and Lululemon made 300 million. On half and the you're sales. You don't think that they're priced right. But that's the thing is that those things are those are the real numbers. In fact, Under Armour doesn't really have any free cash flow because they keep pumping it back in to grow and keep re rebuilding stuff. 
Whereas Lululemon last year had about $250 million of free cash flow, about two bucks a share. So here you got some really good numbers that obviously are attractive to investors. And the question is, if this company is, let's just stipulate for a second to use your term, <laughs> that they're going to be worth more in 10 years than they are today. And that is not certain by any means, okay, for all the reasons we've said. But yeah. if we thought that, um, what would we pay for them today is the next level question. So first, do we like management? And I've got questions that they even have a clue, given that six months ago, everything was full steam ahead. And now six months later, it's a train wreck. It's like, really? You don't have a clue about your business enough to know better than that, which makes me worry about them. And then we go to the margin of safety analysis, which is to say, if you're receiving $250 million dollars, a year in free cash flow, what are you worth? And you know, the market's gonna pay all kinds of prices for that. And right now they're paying seven billion for this company to get $250 million of cash per year. We would Jeez. we would like to pay like two and a half billion, assuming it could keep that up. Okay, now numbers. 250 million of yeah. free cash. Yeah. I'm ballparking the numbers, but we're in the ballpark. How did, sure. How did you get to, I would like to pay $2.5 billion for that? Assuming they can keep it up, right? Which is a durability question, which is a moat question, which we haven't answered yet. Yes. Okay, let me rephrase. I maybe sort of, not really, but if I did want to, yes. I would pay $2.5 million for that. How did you get to the $2.5 million part of I, that? I didn't. I didn't. I got to the $2.5 billion. With oh, sorry. sorry. Billion. Yeah. Billion. All right. So really just quick and dirty way of slapping a, a, a really decent price on a on a cash flow okay, is okay. to think about our real estate example. In this case, we've got this lovely townhome here and it is producing two hundred and fifty dollars a year in free cash flow. Uh -huh. That's a terrible example. It's, we have this apartment complex and it's producing $250,000 a year in free cash flow. <laughs> so basically you're taking some zeros off and you're calling it an apartment now. It's an apartment. $250,000 a year is what we're getting in free cash flow. What would I like to pay for it? Well, what I'd like to pay for it is 10 times that. Oh. Well, that is quick and dirty. That is. And what that re re results in, if I were to be successful in getting the apartment complex for 10 times 250,000, is I would be paying 2.5 million for the apartment complex. And the next year I would receive a 10% return in cash because I'm gonna get 250,000, all right? Mm -hmm. Number one. Number two, if I don't raise the rents at all and can just keep everything the same, in 10 years I'll have all my money back and I'll own this apartment complex free and clear. Got That's it. not so bad right there. Yeah. Okay. But it's yeah. all about the moat. I got to know it's a good apartment complex in a good neighborhood that's not going to go down the tubes and turn into a whole bunch of drug addicts living in my apartment complex. So let's just let, let's just for take a second and be clear about what you just did. You just did a different evaluation, sorry, not even an evaluation. You did a valuation of what you would pay for this company if all of the other stuff worked out. Caveat, caveat, caveat. Yeah. Which is based only on the free cash flow. So the, what you just did was not the margin of safety analysis. No. The margin of safety analysis uh, involves looking at the price and the earnings and the multiples and the growth and the rate discount rates and, and all. Stuff. And you got to run it through a computer and all that. I'm just doing this in my head, real quick. Okay, so I just want to be clear because it's hard to follow these things when you're just listening to it about what math you're using. And right. you did not do a margin of safety analysis. You did a valuation based on free cash flow, where you took the free cash flow and just did ten years of that, so ten times the free cash flow. Correct. Correct. Okay. That's correct. And what I've just approximated would be the historical kind of pricing, maybe a little bit at the higher side um, of a private company sale, probably for the last hundred years. That's ballpark what private companies would sell for. That's certainly a good deal in real estate if you've got a decent location. 
uh, and and the the place is is sound, that's a great deal. You're you're buying the real estate as real estate people know at, at a ten cap rate, which is the same thing as I just said. It's a ten percent return on the price that you paid the whole price of the of the building. And when we apply that to a business, which is what Warren Buffett's done, we've talked about this a little bit. You know, when he did a farm and he did a building in New York. Yeah. This is this is a quick and dirty way to get at what maybe you could pay for this business if uh, blah 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 all the caveats, and then we go okay well two point five billion looks pretty good. What's it actually selling for right now after it's dropped twenty one percent in three days? Oh, it's selling for seven billion dollars. We're not even in the ballpark of a good deal here. Where do you find the seven billion? Is that the market cap? Yeah, and you can Google market cap on any company. It'll come right up. And almost any charting program and any broker will bring up market cap even without you asking. They sort of put it right below the chart. But certainly if you Google um, Lululemon market cap, uh, in fact, I'll do it right now and see what comes up. Um, what the market cap is, is the number of shares times the price per share. That's all it is. Dude, you are and then you're people, good. Well, that's just from, you know, lawyering. But people <laughs> call it market cap in the financial world. Yeah. It's market capitalization is what it stands for. I don't know. These financial people use fancy. They got, a, they got clever terms for everything. But when you Google Lululemon market cap or Coca-Cola market cap or Boeing market cap, you're going to get from Google, you're going to get a chart. And right below the actual chart graph itself, you'll see in bold... MKT space CAP 7.14B. And that's just market cap 7.4 billion, 7.14 billion. So it's right there. Just you can do it with any company you're looking at. So, real quick and dirty, you grab free cash flow, which you actually have to figure out. Yeah, and which we've talked which about. We've talked lot, about so a lot at our lemons, our little lemonade stand. And and then you just multiply it times 10. And in this case, we get 2.5 billion. And we go, oh, okay, well, what's it actually selling for? Market cap, 7.14. Oh, well, criminy. If it dropped another 50%, we'd be getting in the ballpark. Yeah, yeah. And that's basically what Chip Wilson was saying about his own company was that, dude, they got the price of this thing on the moon because it's done so well, it's so profitable. It has a brand, it's expanding with its stores. And now the question is, can they keep it up? Do they have the management to do it? It ain't, it ain't easy. I mean, we're talking about, okay, we start up this hill. Remember our hill? We, st <laughs> we started up the hill and right, right as we're going along pretty good, where you're just wearing nothing but the hill, you realize wow wait a second what's gonna what's gonna keep this going 10 years for sure could could the wheels fall off this wagon and as soon as we start to realize the wheels could fall off this wagon at this price point then we really and then we look at the price point as hey we'd like to, this to be at 2.5 billion and it's currently at 7.1 we immediately realize well we have no way of knowing what this is going to be down the road in 10 years and certainly at a price point of seven billion dollars which is basically what you'd pay for all of Under Armour right now and a lot of other big companies. I just don't know. That It starts to become really difficult. You start to end up at the foot of a cliff where you have to start being a real expert to climb the cliff and really start being careful with the numbers and know who the people are and get deep. And you guys, it's just not us. We can't do that. We just don't have the resources, the, the experience, the brain power, the focus, the 18-hour days. That ain't going to happen. So no. we need this thing to crash, basically, massively crash. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> when the good news is it will, with great certainty, crash. With great certainty, it will at some point. At some point. Um, yeah. God, I'm just thinking about this. Quick Wait, I can't leave that hanging there. People would be like, what? What? With great certainty, it will crash? Yeah. You The market with great certainty goes through these economic big storms and recessions happen. And then the entire market goes down 30, 40, even 50% and takes everything with it, including Lululemon. And then we can 
maybe buy the thing if we believe that it's 10 years more valuable. Okay, yeah, so yeah. there we go. Yeah, I, I feel a little depressed now, I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking about your quick and dirty analysis and like what to do. This this is a hard market. There is nothing easy about this market right now, which should tell you something. If you've got your money invested in a broad market fund, you should be afraid right now, I think. Huh. All right. <laughs> and on that happy note, <laughs> we should talk about that next week. How afraid should you be and what should you do about it? Yeah, we should talk about that. Also, I've been doing a little research into voting rights of shares in public companies just because I found it really interesting. We talked about it a bit with Under Armour because they um, have, I think, three different classes of shares, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And, uh, and, and two of them are being publicly traded, one of which has voting rights and the other one does not. And there's actually a number of companies that have that same kind of structure that's meant to give the control of the company usually to founders right. or at, le at least to some sort of CEO type person. Right. And I find this to be, I mean, I'm a corporate lawyer. I can't help it. I find it to be a fascinating corporate law question of good governance and who owns the company and what are the rights do you have when you are a shareholder, which means you're an owner of the company slash reality. Like if you're being traded publicly, most small investors are not really going to be governing the company and their votes truly aren't going to matter that much. But Here's what caught my attention. Are you ready, Dad? Yes, I am. You mentioned indexes and people who have their money in indexes should be thinking about what's going to happen with this market. So indexes are a, a, a man-made construct and the people who create these indexes are trying to decide if they should allow non-voting shares to be included in the index. And there are all these institutional investors that are pretty upset about it, which I find fascinating. So I would like to talk about that at some point. Me too. All right, cool. Yeah. We got a lot to deal with next week. I'm real excited already about these subjects. <laughs> so uh, I think I'm going to go study up. I'm making, I'm making myself less depressed about the whole thing <laughs> I'm thinking about corporate governance. We started walking up this nice little hill and now all of a sudden the ground is falling out from under us. All right, we will see you guys next week. I think it's time to go play. Thanks, everybody. Bye. See you. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything, and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.